we've all done it. Bought something, sold it, made a profit. And reselling can be a lot of fun, but it's also a serious business. Coppet founders Brent Nilsson and Sean Powers are supporting those who have made a career of flipping desirable goods, whether it be sneakers, apparel, or collectibles. Coppet is a re-commerce automation tool that will change the way people resell. It automates things like listing and delisting and simplifies inventory management more. It also works with platforms like Shopify, eBay Square, StockX, Grailed, and more. I don't know about you, but as someone who does a fair share of buying low and selling high to fund some of my own hobbies, I know I'll be listening in for the details. So let's learn more. Okay, listeners, I am excited that we have today that we're going to take a break from sort of our, our normal story format and allow another early stage business that's here in South Carolina, share with them where they are, what they're, what challenges they're facing. And kind of like this is, this is their becoming of their origin story is what we're calling this. So I will let uh, Sean and his partner introduce themselves and what they're working on with Coppet. Sean? Yeah, my name is Sean Powers. I'm Brett Nelson, and uh, we're working on a startup called Coppet. And Coppet is a re-commerce automation tool. So the re-commerce market is the secondary market for consumer goods. It's $700 billion here in the US. It's two to $3 trillion globally, but it's really underserved by tech. So we're building a platform that allows vendors in that market to manage all their inventory in one place and also allow them to list that inventory across multiple digital sales channels. So marketplace platforms, their digital website, their their POS system if they're a store. And not only that, we track those listings and when it sells on one, we delist it from all the other sales channels as well. Why this? I mean, I'm looking at, and again, I know audience, like you can't see this, but I'm looking at like two young guys that I don't think would have ever had a direct sort of overlap necessarily with an inventory sort of problem. Like where did the aha moment come with this? Let's talk about that. Yeah, Brad. Yeah, so I've been reselling mainly sneakers since middle school, so around seventh grade about 10 years now. And over the years, I've you know touched on other product types like swimming pools during quarantine when there was a big spike in demand for those, trading cards, um, streetwear, apparel, anything and everything that I could find an arbitrage opportunity for. And it started off as a way to earn some money on the side. I became very passionate about collecting sneakers, but in middle school, it's hard to find a job, even a summer job, uh, to afford that expensive of a hobby. So I started reselling and became very familiar with this market, very tied into the community and <clears throat> wanted to continue to build that throughout the rest of high school, um, college, and even beyond. But I found that I hit a point uh, around my freshman year of high school, grossing a little over $300,000 a year, just flipping sneakers out of my dorm room where it became a lot to maintain. Um, I hit a point where you know, spending hours each night just managing the 20 to 30 pairs of shoes I'd got in for that day, having to add those into a Google spreadsheet to keep track of inventory and sales, um, and then list across every platform that I could resell the item on so I could quickly get out and invest in the next pair. Um, with that, there are about a dozen different platforms that someone like myself could resell a pair of shoes on from, you know, eBay, Poshmark, StockX, Goat, Grailed everything um and as an individual reseller it behooves you to have it marketed across as many platforms as possible because that guarantees a quicker sale and you know maximization of your profit there but 
um, I hit a point where I couldn't spend as much time as I'd hoped to acquiring inventory and networking with other vendors in the marketplace and so on, because all my time was going to inventory management, especially as I was in college, balancing classes and all that as well. It became very difficult to manage everything. So um, I came up with the idea for this tool as a way to initially just help myself uh, manage my own business. But um, it always seemed like a pipe dream because Sean and I both don't have a background in computer science that we wish we did at this point. Um, so yeah. it was just one of those things where, yeah, it would be great, but you know, maybe someone else will do it at some point. Um, then I met Sean and uh, was telling him about this idea and he you know, knew some people in the area that could help us with that. And we, you know, got to working on business plan and, you know, the rest is history. Yeah. I think we met, yeah, your freshman year, right? When we were both in the entrepreneurship club and uh, we were both on the exec team. We were grabbing coffee one day uh, and he mentioned this idea. And I mean, it was like, well, the first step, writing a business plan. And so uh, put a business plan together and it got to the point about a year after we really started putting the, uh, you know, the final touches on the concept. Well, why don't we just do it? We, yeah. knew, uh, <laughs> we knew a software developer uh, contracting company here in Columbia. Uh, and we figured, well, we could bootstrap it or we could just forget about the idea. And we decided to move forward and, and see if we could make it happen. So I love, Brad, that you were hustling. I want to make sure I heard this right. 300,000? Is that what I just heard? Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine your parents being like, I hope he's still going to class and like isn't going to like lose interest in like finishing school. Okay, so I'm I I don't feel like a cool enough person to know anything about the sneaker market. So, um, what's like the coolest thing you have resold? So, I guess the three most memorable sales I've had. Uh, first one was the first sale I ever did. So, um, when I first built this passion for sneakers, I became infatuated by this one shoe in particular the KD4 Galaxy. So Kevin Durant's fourth all-star game shoe. Very funky shoe. Um, if you see it, you know, it's it's a wild looking shoe. But I really wanted it and I kept searching for it. I could only find it on eBay for like $1,000. And, you know, as a middle schooler, seventh grade, $1,000 might as well be a million dollars. That's, you know, money way out of my reach. So I kept looking for it because I figured it was some typo that someone made. But couldn't find it on Nike's website, Foot Locker, anywhere. Uh, eventually, I stumbled upon some website in, it was some just random name, like nikeshoe.com, and found this shoe for $80. I bought it. It shipped in a month later with um, Chinese characters written all over it. I didn't think anything of it, so I wore it to school the next day, and everyone knew they were fake. Um, no idea how, but you know, everyone in the hallway is coming up to me, ridiculing me, saying, I heard you're wearing fake shoes. And I was horrified. So I went home. I told my dad, I can't be caught wearing dead, wearing these shoes. You got to throw them on your eBay account. Just get rid of them. So he put them up for auction. It said that they were unauthorized, unauthentic shoes, and they still sold for about $280. So that was the original seed capital I used to then go ahead and start reselling shoes. Um, I went the next weekend with my mom to the mall, camped out for a pair of Jordans and flipped those and just kept doing that over and over again um, until I got to where I am now. But another memorable one was the Travis Scott Jordan ones. So on his birthday, Travis Scott's website did a surprise drop. So I was at Chipotle with a friend and 
saw um, a Twitter notification pop up with a link. And I've just gotten in the habit of whenever I see just a bare link pop up, it's typically a surprise drop for a shoe. So I'd click it, immediately go to it and get put through a line. I somehow got in, got the shoe. Um, they retailed for about $250. And 30 minutes later, by the time I got back to my dorm room, I'd sold them for a thousand um, just by showing the email confirmation for the order. Um, I called my parents and said, <laughs> I just made, you know, 750 bucks in 30 minutes off a pair of shoes. And I, that was one of the um, uh, signals to them that I, you know, was doing something that may be stable or maybe, you know, legitimate. It, it's funny to think though, how much were those, uh, the fake 84 galaxies? Uh, $80. You took $80 uh, and turned it into a $350,000 a year revenue business. <laughs> well, but honestly, who deserves a piece of that are all the kids who bullied you because it sounds like <laughs> what, what really has sent you down this path is middle school bullies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, that might be the most positive story I've ever heard come out of being made fun of at school. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> the biggest sale I ever made, um, I follow a lot of Twitter accounts just based around shoes that they monitor sites and will find arbitrage opportunities. And um, a big part of my business has also been Supreme, so the skateboard streetwear brand. And um, one day I found... You know, Twitter notification pops up and it's from this account that just monitors StockX. And they tweet out a Vanson um, leather jacket from Supreme that was a Scarface, like the movie, um, a Scarface jacket. And I remember when it released in 2018, and they typically retail for a little over $1,000, but this was a size small, which is the rare size you can typically get in a Supreme um, apparel item. Um, and there's a lowest ask for $500 and the last sale was 2000. So that's why I tweeted out saying, you know, it's a lot, just got listed for a lot lower than the previous sale. So I check it out. And before I buy anything on there, you can see, you know, what the previous sales have been, um, when, how frequent the sales have been. And, you know, the last sale was two months ago. So I thought if I were to buy this, I could maybe flip it for 800 you know, a couple months, which is a decent return, but still a lot of capital tied up, but whatever, I'll take the risk. So I buy it and how StockX works is you buy an item, the seller then has to ship it to StockX for them to authenticate it before they then ship it to the buyer. So I get confirmation saying that it's shipped to StockX and I check back on the listing and I see there's now a highest bid on this item for 4,000. And so I think, this might be a typo. Um, also, the jacket I ordered might be fake. So, but we'll see. A um, couple of days later, I get the email saying it was authenticated. So I immediately hop back on my phone, look up the item, and the highest bid is still there. But there have been instances, many instances, in fact, where there are ghost bids. So I might put up a bid on StockX. Um, it, uh, I delete it, but for some reason, it still shows that bid there. So wasn't getting my hopes up. Um, and then I am following the tracking and the day before it's supposed to deliver, I just try to confirm the bid or take the bid and it goes through. And I think, wow, um, you know, I just 10 X or hundred, no, 10 X my money. Sorry. 
been a long day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I tell my mom because I get stuff shipped back home from Pennsylvania, so um, there's no sales tax. So uh, I have it shipped there, and I tell my mom, I'm sending you a label for this item. Do not even open it from its packaging. Just slap the label back onto it and ship it back out because I don't want there to be any chance that, you know, some scuff gets on it, dust gets on it, and StockX doesn't accept it when I sell it back to them. Um, and she did. She felt very nervous packaging it because I told her the situation. Um, and the sale went through, and I the $400 jacket I bought sold for $4,500 in about a week. Get some KD4 Galaxies. Yeah. <laughs> I did, in fact, end up getting a real pair of the KD4 Galaxies to walk across the stage in graduation. So that's the one you I'll never sell. But Sean, you've had one yourself. You know, you and I, we've crossed paths a lot over the years. You know, you also have had a project of your own. Do you, you want to talk about the coffee shop? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I had a really interesting opportunity as I was moving towards graduation from USC. So, uh, Let's see. That was my senior year. So that was the same year I met Brett uh, and I was moving towards graduation. I had a couple of uh, full-time job offers, uh, one with ExxonMobil, one with Boeing, uh, but I was president of the entrepreneurship club at the time. And there was a regional development company that had a mixed-use apartment complex. Uh, they had some retail space that they were having uh, trouble filling up with uh, tenants. They wanted a coffee shop as an anchor tenant. Uh, and it wasn't the right time in the life cycle for some local chains to move in. So they reached out to the Moore School uh, with an opportunity that got passed down to me, which was essentially uh, a, they would provide a really great capital package for a student or a student group to go ahead and open up a coffee shop. Um, and I figured, well, either I could go work at a full time job, uh, which would be really stable. You get PTO, you get a salary. It's nice. Uh, there's There's been a lot of uh, the grass is greener moments for me. Uh, but or I could take this opportunity and see if I could build this coffee shop and get all the experience that comes with building a business, you know, management, administration, all that good stuff. And um, I also love coffee. So I uh, <laughs> turned down my job offers and decided to take them up on uh, trying to open up this coffee shop. And uh, my parents were terrified, but I <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see here. Yeah, that was May of 2019. It took a lot longer to negotiate out the lease with them than we thought. Uh, we thought we'd have it ready to go in August of 2019, but it took till the first week of February of 2020. And uh, that was just, I think, right at or like a week before coronavirus got to Seattle. So we signed the lease and then coronavirus started, you know, spreading in the U.S. So the timing was unfortunate, uh, but we had an obligation to open in May, which we did. Uh, we did get to break even in October, but... Uh, you know, break even doesn't mean you have a good cash balance. And uh, as we were moving towards winter and students were leaving town, uh, we made the really difficult decision to go ahead and um, close up shop. But even though that venture didn't work out the way I hoped, it gave me the opportunity to stay here in Columbia, uh, really network in with the entrepreneurial community uh, and meet all the great mentors that we have now for Coppit. And also kept me in Columbia as we continue to develop Coppit as a concept and then actually start building it. So although the coffee shop didn't work out the way I hoped, uh, it let me stay here, uh, meet a great community of folks, and work with Brett to build this company. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, I have a little similar backstory. I uh, I had a full-time offer from a very established public relations firm in Charlotte. And I had this little offer from the technology incubator here in Columbia. And I told my parents I was taking this job. And they were like, 
you're going to take care of chickens? And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) no, but that's okay. Um, So anyways, but it's kept me here in Columbia. It's been a great, it was a great, a great experience. Um, But let's go back to, so like Brett, yes, you had, you personally had this inventory nightmare, but like, how did you further validate that this was a real problem? Did, Did you, what was sort of that outreach to kind of lead you to, okay, this is a real system-wide issue that you want to address? Like, where did that feedback come from? Yeah. So the other issue that I didn't touch on is the issue of double sales. So when you're managing all these inventory items across multiple sales channels, if an item sells on one platform, you have to immediately jump on it to delist it from the other platforms. Because if it sells on a second platform, these are all unique items. So you can't just be like, oh, I'll pull one out from the back room and fulfill the second order because that item already sold. So you then have to cancel one of those orders, which you're not only angering a customer, but if you're working through one of these third-party marketplace platforms, you can get charged a pretty high fee, typically a 15% transaction fee, which um, is more in this market typically than the profit margin you're taking home on sale in general. So it would really cut into your losses and just the connections that I formulated over the past 10 years of operating this market, I would hear from people constantly like, oh, I just got hit with, you know, a $50 fee on a pair of shoes that sold because I forgot to delist it once it sold on another platform. Mm -hmm. And I just kept seeing this and seeing this. And I mean, I'll be very transparent. I was by no means, still by no means, um, the largest vendor in this space. There are, you know, kids way younger than me that are doing way, way larger numbers than I have ever done. Um, but experiencing these same issues and even stores that are moving millions of dollars of inventory every year are also running into this issue. So, um, this relatively small issue that I was experiencing is compounded, um, 10, hundred times through these other vendors mm-hmm. and seeing that they were still experiencing it and they have way greater connections, way more resources than I do. I realized there's, there can't be a solution to this. So, um, after yeah, just networking with other with store owners, um, lower to larger scale individual resellers, all um, seeing these same issues, I realized you know I could find a solution for myself, but it wouldn't be benefiting the overall community, and um, I wanted to find something to you know elevate this community that really has shaped me throughout my most formative years of life, the sneaker community. Um, so yeah, I wanted to kind of leave my mark on on that industry. So let's, let's talk a bit about, um, your MVP, you know, where are you? I know that you, you've reached out and you're working with a local group to sort of develop that, but like, what does it actually look like? How did you decide what features to include, not include like just, yeah. How did you get to where you are right now with your MVP? I think, um, when we started out, it was a lot just based off of a small focus group of some of Brett's connections on, uh, what would this look like to benefit individuals who are operating as vendors in this space? So we started doing that back August of 2020, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we kind of, you know, spaghetti stringed it out, you know, designed what we thought it should look like, uh, went to this local firm and uh, kind of just built out what we thought we needed. Uh, got to June and we had it finished um, and we started validating it in the market. So just individuals trying to get them onboarded, show them, you know, the value that we can add through this product. Uh, but through that experience, actually, I mean, we were focusing on smaller vendors. We didn't realize really like that bigger enterprise type vendors didn't really have a tool like this either. And they needed it, something that connected 
their Shopify website, their POS system, all in one hub, one inventory management tool, uh, they were using spreadsheets or they were using antiquated software from the early 2000s. And we had an MVP that we could easily match to their needs. So we went from, we decided to kind of pivot back in October and take it and like kind of refigure it to fit that larger client type as well. So uh, we're actually moving towards the launching in June of this year, our uh, full enterprise type uh, account. And we're really excited for that. How big are we are we talking? So we, you've gone from, you know, helping the kid, the 12 year old. I, I'm still flabbergasted. I feel like I need to like, I want to know this whole subculture of sneaker um, <laughs> because it's just like, what am I doing wrong? Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> but you know, you, you started off there, but now, you know, you've built something for a much larger, like how big, when we say enterprise, how big are you talking? So a lot of these stores, they vary greatly because the majority of these stores originate as someone like myself that is very into sneakers, started reselling um, and slowly and gradually grew their business and, you know, fell in love with it once in the long term. So the next um, natural progression is you open up your own storefront. So a lot of times these stores are, um, you know, smaller. There's a couple in each major city um, that are staples of their community. And then in some larger cities, there are these multi-million dollar businesses, sometimes chains. Like there's Cola Kicks down here mm -hmm. in Columbia with uh, four stores, and they're already looking to expand to more locations. Um, and, you know, they have a lot more infrastructure built into it. But a lot of these other stores you go to, and if you're consigning with them, you're dropping off tens of thousands of dollars worth of sneakers and you're signing over to them on a piece of paper saying, you know, this is what I have, this is how much I want to sell for, here's my phone number, call me if and when it sells. So you're just sitting by your phone all day, you know, hoping it sells at some point, but you have no, you know, way to track it really. Um, and you're trusting that, you know, that spreadsheet that you filled out your info on, you know, doesn't get crumpled up and thrown in the trash or, you know, whatever. So, um, there's a lot of variation with these stores. We've spoke to some that you know are using, like Sean said, antiquated software from the '90s built out for thrift stores, but they're using it to manage you know two million dollars worth of high-end sneakers and luxury goods. So um, there's a very large uh, you know lack of technology within this space. Mm -hmm. Okay, guys. So I know you you've you've given us like the quick and dirty, like what it is, what you're doing, but like. How does this really help the kid in their college dorm room and then take them through even maybe to an enterprise size? Do they ever want to? Yeah. So, I mean, with Copit, it takes you about two and a half minutes to list one piece of inventory to one marketplace platform. If you're listing to four, that'll take you 10 minutes for one item. With Copit, you can list to as many as you want, one, two, 10, in only 15 seconds. So if you've traditionally listed to four marketplace platforms with your inventory, we could actually 40x the amount of throughput that you have listing to, to platforms. So if you're an individual, that goes for, Brett, you were doing, what was it, 33 hours every month listing 200 items across, you know, four marketplace platforms. We bring that down to like less than an hour with Copit. Now, if you're an enterprise, we can bring, you know, if you're listing, what was it, uh, a thousand items? Yeah. Um, or it was 6,000 items across four marketplace platforms. That'll take you like a thousand hours to do manually with Copit. It takes you only, what was it, 60, something like that. So we can radically decrease the amount of time you're actually spending just managing your inventory. And you can use that time to 
hang out with your friends if you're, you know, doing it as a side hustle, spend time with family, read a book. I don't know. But <laughs> but with these big enterprises, you know, you could use six employees to list your items across four sales channels online or only 30% of one employee's time every month. So it's a huge amount of time and cost savings for a big enterprises. So that's really the, the value that we bring to our users. So just so the audience can maybe have a, a better understanding of sort of your market size, mm-hmm. um, yeah. aside from sneakers, give me another example of like another app- application of what it is that you're doing. Yeah. So sneakers is a big one just that we're focusing on because that's where we have our subject matter expertise. Sure. That's $6.2 billion globally. It's going to grow to 30 by the end of the decade. So to give you not, yeah, I know, right? It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. Listeners, you couldn't just see the look on my face. <laughs> I can see it because of the, the video camera, but I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but apparel is another big one. Even luxury apparel or apparel generally on the e-commerce market, that's $28 billion with a 60, 68% year-over-year growth rate right now. So, and those are only two verticals in the $700 billion market just here in the US and it's $2 trillion globally. You also have luxury watches, tickets, trading cards, really anything you're looking to resell up swimming pools during yeah. the pandemic. <laughs> were so yeah, and a lot of people, even individuals who aren't doing this as a side hustle, have experience in this market. You know, you have a few extra pieces of clothes you want to like offload or, you know, you might have a spare bike or something that you just, you don't want to just throw away. You want to have it be reused and recycled because that's a responsible thing to do. So uh, it's a market that touches everyone. So, okay. You've got, you have, you have an MVP out there now you're actually evolving it to, I would say you're Mm -hmm. the enterprise level. I know you said that you were bootstrapping, but have you leaned on Anything else? Are you truly, you all, just the two, you capitalizing this whole thing? And how are you doing that? I know that's like, I feel like that's always the burning question (laughs) for our listenership is, how are they paying for this? Are they living in their cars? Like, how are they making this work? (laughs) It was, uh, we bootstrapped it for the first year and a half. No, probably, yeah, first year. Uh, We bootstrapped it to get our MVP out. We got that done. And then we kind of figured, well, we know we found a good market fit, this enterprise type user. How do we get what our MVP to fit that? How do we pay for it? So we actually went ahead with a friends and family round. Um, and we had really great mentors here in Columbia. There's a great community that taught us, how do you even do a fundraising round? What does that mean? Uh, so we were able to do that just from the help of everyone here in Columbia, do a friends and family round, raise some money. And with that, we were actually able to uh, bring our development in-house. So we hired a couple of software developers um, and we were able to start transitioning that over. Uh, and we actually just started an angel round recently. And with those funds, we're able to really expand our team. We have five employees now uh, in two countries, and we're barely done with the product. I feel like I've never actually even asked this question, but like, how was that navigating a friends and family round? Is it more awkward to approach a family member than it is an investor? Like, what's that really like? I mean, I, I think it goes kind of, it depends. It depends on who you yeah. ask. Uh, but I mean, if you go to the right, I mean, friends and family who are also mature and realize it's a risk, but are willing to take that risk. Uh, I think it's, it typically works out. I'm just curious what that's been like for you all. I mean, doesn't, yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't have to be a general question, but like just for you all, as you were, obviously you both have had side, side hustles and your, your parents have, have hopefully accepted that you're probably going to be serial entrepreneurs for a long time. Um, you know, but, but coming to them with this concept, I mean, was that a, I don't know. Did you have some anxieties around it? Do you have like, I, I don't know. I can almost see it being like, if I was in your position, like, I think I would have more anxiety approaching my parents than I would 
an angel. I don't know why. Oh. I, I maybe because there's just a different expectation of the relationship yeah. with the angel versus with yeah. the family member. Like I just, I'm just curious. I've never been in that position, so I'm just curious if. Um, I typically don't. That was like dinner with my angel investors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> stressful, but it's motivating. I yeah. mean, it's stressful that you're taking money from friends and family because they're your friends and family. You don't want business harming your personal relationship with them. But because of that, it's definitely motivating that this idea is going to work. We will find a way. Yeah. So do you almost feel like a more personal responsibility with that money than you would say a private investor? No, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're always, you know, you're responsible to your your investors, whether or not they're friends and family or not. So, yeah. That's the politically correct answer. (laughs) That is when we're going through a fundraising round. (laughs) I know. I I was just seeing, I was just seeing if you were going to take my bait. I think I have my own suspicion of what you would actually, how you'd actually answer that question. Okay. So the, your, your enterprise launches, you said June of this year. Is that right? Yep. June. Um, how do customers find you? Uh, we have our website, copit.io, C-O-P-Y-T.io. So uh, if you're interested in a really great piece of inventory software with uh, consignment capabilities, you should definitely reach out. But yeah, we'll have a demo set up for them, uh, show them the value that we add in our product. And we also have all social media accounts mm-hmm. from Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, copit.io. I want to go back to your staff. Like, you know, you all are in your probably mid-20s, something like that what's that been like hiring and do you feel like you've had a unique challenge to overcome given your age or not? Like um, what's that been like now being a boss? I think it's not so much, it depends on your mentality, right? It's, we're not necessarily building an organization where we're the boss or we're the managers and everyone's our employee. I mean, we're all a team. We're in this together and we're building something together. Uh, Our job is to put our people first, make sure that we give them what they need to succeed and let them run at it. Uh, and we're really proud of the culture that we've developed at Coppet. That's something that we, like I said, we pride ourselves on a lot is putting our team first. So we find people who can operate in that team environment with that team mindset. We give them what they need and we support them to be successful. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of like, I feel like the culture word is getting so overused to a point it has no real meaning. Uh, Everyone says they, they, they want to join a company with great culture, but like, what does that mean for you all? Like, how do you define working for Coppet? I think it's a, it's a matter of uh, passion. You know, it's going back to, like I said, we're, we're building something together. Uh, we want people who are okay taking risks, okay taking on roles that are outside their comfort zone, but willing to learn, willing to, to uh, build something new and, and great. Um, yeah. So have you found... Um, recruiting the right people to be a unique challenge or no people are just really enthusiastic about what it is that you're doing and that's not been the hard part I don't know I feel like we've I'd say we've definitely lucked out in that department especially because our first two hires happened to be two individuals that were passionate about the idea Mm -hmm. and we're just excited to um, you know be a part of it but also learn I think that relates to our culture a lot is that you know Sean and I never you know, enter a room feeling that we're the smartest in the room, even with our employees, because we always know we can learn from them. Um, and whenever we are planning a new feature or, um, you know, navigating a new space, we always want to get their input on as well, because they share that passion for this product and want to make sure that, you know, it is a team oriented um, journey that we're going into. Mm-hmm. 
and I think that extends to our like team of mentors and advisors too. Uh, yeah. Like you said, we're in our mid twenties. So we know we're not the smartest. We're, we're definitely yeah. not the smartest people in the room. So we want to make sure that we continue to not be the smartest people in the room. Yeah. And we get people who know what they're doing, have experience doing what we're doing now um, to help guide us in this journey. And that's really important to us. So how do you feel like you've found those people? I, I, you know, people always talk about, you know, find, you know, entrepreneurship's a lonely thing. Make sure you surround yourself with the right people. But like, that's all becoming very, you know, um, cookie cutter advice. But like an actual application, how have you done that? I would say community. Community involvement's been a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking for mentors and advisors, if you have an idea, but you don't know where to start. Um, I know if you're in Greenville, uh, connecting with next. If you're in Charleston, uh, there, I think it's the Harbor is the accelerator or the, the program down there. And here in Columbia, we have GroCo. So find that community of entrepreneurs, people who are looking to do things and, you know, solicit that mentorship. And, it, um, but yeah, just connecting with the community, get involved. That's how you find the right people. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that we've not touched on yet? If I were to say one thing, uh, I, I guess it would be uh, really the the difference between having having an idea and starting a company is just doing it uh, and having some kind of push you over the edge to do it. So if anyone's listening and just needs someone to talk to about their idea and need advice on how to get started or where to go, feel free to reach out to us. Shoot us an email, leave us a message on our website. We want to help you. That's important to us. Being part of the community is important to us. Feel free to reach out and use, like, use us however you need to. Okay, thanks everybody for uh, enjoying this mini-series with us. This is the last episode of Becoming the Origin Story for the season. I am the host of Of Note, Joseph Nother, and I wanted to point out a special thanks to, to Laura McIntosh for conducting these interviews with these first-time founders and entrepreneurs. The original music of this podcast is by Matt Honkinen, uh, and Hunter Foster is our producer and editor. And a special thanks to Robin Hendricks with SC Commerce. And with that, I look forward to August when we debut season four. Uh, we just finished the interviews with the innovators for that season. And I can tell you that we have some of the best stories and some of the best advice to come. I want to take a special moment to, to recognize um, and say goodbye to uh, someone who has made this journey of, of note and really just the whole program of Scribble, SC Commerce, what it is. And that is, is Laura McIntosh. She is leaving us uh, and the program and actually heading out west. And so this will likely be the last time you hear her uh, voice uh, on a podcast. Um, and it's bittersweet because I know she's on to bigger and better things. Uh, but at the same time, she leaves her mark with the interviews, the insights, the stories, and the inspiration that this content has become over the course of many, many years now. Uh, I hope you all join us in seeing her off and fond farewell. Uh, and I hope you all as well are excited about where we're going. Uh, she said the same thing to us as she left. Uh, she'll be watching from out west to see and to hear about these stories on the relentless pursuit of innovation.